come with me on an exploration of self-discovery. On this podcast, we decipher what really matters as we unravel the chaos of day-to-day work to learn how to build an essential life. Thank you, everyone, for being here on the What's Essential podcast. I'm Greg McEwen, your host. I've been thinking about this pandemic and how it's created this involuntary reflection. One of the things that happens in that reflective period is whether we want to or not, we find ourselves facing regrets. And we might not like to face it for very long. It can be pretty awkward, quite painful, and so we want to push forward. But It seems to me that we have been taught that we shouldn't have regrets. And so as soon as we feel them, we push forward and then we get stuck in them. We're trying to avoid them and that means that we get stuck in them. And so my guest today is the one and only Dan Pink, the number one New York Times bestselling author of Drive and When to Sell as Human, A Whole New Mind. And he inverts this whole view of the matter in his marvelous new book, the power of regrets. We're going to discuss five counterintuitive things that you can do right now to use regrets to your advantage in designing a life that really matters. Dan, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Greg, it's great to be with you. Thanks for that really nice introduction. I appreciate it. You've had this whole career now, a quarter of a century. Of course, there's always highs and lows in writing and publishing and books and so on. Not for you, though. I actually was at the Stanford graduation ceremony where Oprah spoke, where she gave out a whole new mind to every single person in attendance. That, to me, at least was symbolic of something important. Suddenly, Oprah's saying, he has answers. Dan knows stuff. He's named things that matter to me. I came across a comment from you. It's where you're talking about your regrets. Basically, you say you have several regrets yourself. Yeah. And one of them was to do with not being bold enough. But then yeah. you write the phrase, stay tuned. I thought that meant that you have bold things you're thinking about that you've been previously holding back from. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah. I have a few ideas of things that I want to do. And the risks that I took earlier on were very calculated and deliberate. And I'm not a very risk prone person. I'm at a point in my life where I can look backward and I can look forward. And I have finally a fair bit of mileage on me, but I also have a pretty long road ahead, I hope. And I want to spend that time in the road ahead doing things that are important, that matter, that test me, that challenge me and that contribute. That right there feels something like the universal drive. I agree with you completely about that. There's an old journalistic adage, which is always extrapolate from your own experience. You're not that special. And <laughs> yeah. if I am interested enough in, in a subject that I want to spend a few years writing a book about it, that there are going to be plenty of people interested in spending a few hours to read it. Something you're saying there is just completely real. When you decide to write a book like this or any book, you are signing up for years and years of thinking, then writing, then speaking and teaching and sharing. I mean, it's a multi-year commitment. And of course, 
You know that, right. I mean, you yeah. live that. So yeah, I, I agree with you. And I'll see you and raise you though. I think in some cases it's a multi-decade commitment. So I, I wrote a book. My first book was a book called Free Agent Nation about the rise of people working for themselves. I still get calls from reporters asking about that topic. What do you get the most calls for now? I get a huge number of inbound on the sales stuff that I've written. Yeah, because that's a very specific must have within absolutely every business. It's not a nice to have. If there are not sales, there is no business. And, right. so, and you can never stop doing it because then you will not have right. a business. And I like, to, I like to flatter myself to think that book that I wrote called To Sell is Human was a smart, thorough treatment of sales. Many of the books about sales were kind of vacuous. I think perhaps because of its absolute necessity, the things that we need the most, perhaps we're most willing to vacillate on the ethics involved because it's like, look, a sort of do or die type of situation. Maybe. I think there's a simpler explanation, which is yeah. which has to do with information. Coming to this book specifically, one of the five specific things I want to pull out from this, the, the first is the World Regret Survey. Let's just start with that. What did you do exactly? Well, I set up a website and asked people to contribute their regrets. And to my utter surprise, we now have about 17,000 regrets from people in 105 countries. And this incredible collection of regrets, the you know, stories of human longing and aspiration and frustration and despair and hope and all of those ended up and shame and guilt and quest for redemption. <laughs> mm -hmm. All of those tales ended up becoming this incredible corpus of material that allowed me to make some insights into the nature of regret in a way that I don't think has been done before. All the way through the book, there are these, you know, selected statements of regret from people yeah. who have shared from all over the world. Yeah. And it's hard to look away from them because mm. it is so painful. Mm. I mean, just this morning, so we have our mm. little family discussion, little family council every morning. Really? And yeah. How and old are your kids? Teenagers. They're willing to do that? To be perfectly honest, the hardest thing about it is getting us to stop. Wow. Because, yeah, they're real talkers. We try and cut it off at half an hour. But this morning, as we were just gathering people together before we got to any, any of what we really needed to get to officially, I just out of the blue said, okay, what are your regrets from your life? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, what I got was total silence. Interesting. But then also, as we sort of left it for a little longer, the discussion started being, well, well, that's a pretty awkward question. You know, who, who wants to share? Yeah. And then one of my daughters told a story about when she had gone babysitting once and was trying to show the parents how good she was. She was young when she was doing this. And then everything she shared, she felt was actually not an evidence of being a good babysitter, even though she was trying to demonstrate that she was. Okay. Okay. And, and it, you could tell the embarrassment, even as she yeah. shared it, was there, yeah. even yeah. though she was laughing, telling the story. Well, anyway... Right. I think it's interesting that people don't really want to talk about it, but it's it's an awkward subject. What have you learned? I mean, among other well, things. Well, let me go back to your daughter here because I'm going to make go. I'm going to I'm going to make a I'm going to make a guess here. So, I wonder whether telling that story and you can go back and find this out made your daughter feel worse about the experience or better about the experience. And I'm going to guess it made her feel better about the experience. I'm going to guess that. The act of, and, and the reason I'm getting to guess this is because there's a lot of science supporting this hypothesis here, that the act of disclosure and the act of sense-making that comes from telling the story is itself a relief to people. You'd think less of her. 
No, no. I can't imagine that. Right. So this is the thing. This is what we're wrong about. We think that when we disclose negative things about ourselves, that we're going to feel crappy about it and that other people are going to think less of it. And what a pile of evidence tells us is that self-disclosure itself is almost always inherently valuable, that we relieve the burden through disclosure and the act of putting these inchoate feelings into words is sense-making that relieves some of the pain. What's more, and the other big mistake that we make is that when we reveal negative things about ourselves, we think people will think less highly of us, and we're almost always wrong about that. And so one of the key components in reckoning with our regrets is self-disclosure. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. Yeah, one of the suggestions that you have in the book, it was a start a regret circle. Oh, yeah. What's the idea of the regret circle? Get a bunch of people together and talk about your regrets and help other people make sense of them and extract lessons from them. It's sort of like a book club, but you don't have to read anything. The first actionable tool is this, people can go to www.worldregretssurvey.com and write down what you regret. And you can also go to a map there that where you can click on a country or a state or a province and see what people in Utah regret or see what people in, or in California England. or in, yeah, or in the UK. Oh my gosh, we have so many in the UK. We have like about a thousand in the UK or people in Chile or, and we have it, we have the survey in Spanish. We have the survey in Chinese entries in Japanese. We've gotten entries in French. We've gotten entries in Portuguese. I filled out the survey myself. And oh. one of the, the questions, I mean, I want people to even ask it right now is think about a significant regret is one word. And you've already covered sort of why people should disclose this at first, at least to themselves. We have to think about how we deal with negative emotions. And here, when I when you analyze the regrets, there's not a huge amount of national difference in the content of people's regrets. There's actually far less national difference than I ever would have expected. Mm -hmm. However, there is a national difference on the notion of regret itself. And so Americans especially love the philosophy of no regrets. And 
what the research tells us is that is a bad idea, that the only people without regrets are little kids whose brains haven't developed, people with neurodegenerative diseases, and sociopaths. Everybody else has regrets. Regret is functional. It makes us human. But you have to deal with it properly. And the way you deal with it is this. You can take your regrets and you can say, like, you feel this that, that negative emotion, that stab of regret. You can say, you know what? Feelings don't matter, especially negative feelings. I'm ignoring it. It doesn't matter. Okay, that's one. That's a bad idea that you become delusional that way. You can also go almost the opposite of that and say feelings are the only truth there is. My feelings tell me everything. My feelings are the one universal truth. And if you can wallow in those regrets, that is even worse. That leads to despair. What you have to do is you have to say, oh, a negative feeling like regret. That's a bulletin. That's like it's telling me something. It's information. It, the world, the universe is trying to tell me something. Am I going to be open to receiving what it's trying to tell me? And then use that feeling for thinking and that thinking for acting. And, and then there's this process that you can do that begins with self-disclosure. And even if you're still skittish about revealing it to other people, as you mentioned, Greg, there's a lot of evidence about simply writing about it privately. It's self-therapeutic. Then the next step is this. So you have to treat yourself with self-compassion. And that's a triangulation between these extremes. And the third one is self-distancing. That is, you got to take a step back to draw a lesson from it. And we all know this. We all know that we're better at solving other people's problems than we are our own. And there are various techniques you can use to self-distance. And so, so when we disclose, when we offer ourselves compassion, and then when we distance from the problem, we can extract a lesson from our regrets and apply that to do better in the future. So staying with self-compassion for just a second, so I would describe that as maybe a second thing people can immediately do who want sure. to do something with their regrets is take this self-compassion quiz that you talk about. Okay. This is from Kristen Neff. Yes. So they can go to HTTPS, uh, you know, colon self dash compassion.org. Take that quiz. That's a good place to, to be able to start seeing whether you're getting that right tension, that right triangulation to use yeah. that term. So let's call that number two, immediate thing people can do. A third thing that you said, which I really liked was with action regrets. Now you're distinguishing action regrets from inaction regrets, but then with action regrets, you give a two-step process for that. Yeah. I mean, an action regret is you have done something that has that you regret having done. An inaction regret is you regret not having done something. Exactly. Right? I'm understanding that, right? And then, so with an action regret, the first thing you do is undo it. If there's something if you, you can, can do yeah. to apologize. Make amends, make restitution, anything that you can to undo it. Right. Do what you can do. And then the, the one I loved especially was at least it. Tell us what that strategy is. So- what you do there, it's relatively straightforward, is you find a silver lining. And at the heart of regret is what's called counterfactual thinking. And it's something that human beings are pretty darn good at. We can imagine a set of facts that are counter to reality. There are two kinds of counterfactuals. There are upward counterfactuals. If only I'd done this, things would be better. There also are downward counterfactuals. You imagine how it could be worse. And what the research tells us is that upward counterfactuals, if only, make us feel worse. But because totally. they make us feel worse, they make us do better. But downward counterfactuals, these at least, they make us feel better. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. The at least it approach is what I ended up doing with my daughter this morning. I, I said, look, could it have been worse? At least the children were. And she said, well, they were all alive and asleep when they came home. I'm like, yeah, that's a really big deal in comparison to any regret you might have of 
how you happen to talk about it. I'll give you a very easy thing for there. You say to your daughter, if your best friend came to you with this problem, what would you tell her to do? And what you can do in that case with your daughter is say, okay, what are the lessons that you learned from that? And so the lesson is before you have this encounter with these parents, like, okay, what are the three big points I want to make? What's the most important thing that they need to know? Uh, rather than just do what a lot of us do, even as adults, which is just open our mouths, start talking and see where it goes. What do you mean by the four core regrets? So the four core regrets are something that comes out of that world regrets survey. And what I found, again, as I was exploring this topic, is that when scholars have looked at regret, they've, they've looked at it by the domains of our life. So this is a family regret. This is a education regret. This is a career regret. This is a romance regret. This is a health regret. And when I was looking at that research and actually tried to do some of it my own with a quantitative survey of the U.S. population, it, you see results all over the place. And it wasn't very clarifying. And what I realized is that was not the important thing that was going on, that beneath that was a kind of a hidden architecture of regret that around the world, people ended up with the same four regrets and it didn't matter the domain of life. Let me give you an example. Boldness is one of the four core regrets. Boldness regrets if only I taken the chance. You're at a juncture in your life, you can play it safe or you can take the risk. People play it safe, overwhelmingly regret it. People who take the chance, sometimes they regret it, but much more often they don't regret it, even if it doesn't turn out well. You find that around the world, People's regrets keep coming back to these same four things. Tell me what the four things are. Foundation regrets, which are regrets about basically not doing the work. I didn't study hard in school, and now I'm paying the price for it. Well, I'm in a dead-end job. It's sort of investment regrets. You didn't invest. Investing in the broad sense of investing. Sense. Right, yes, yeah. In investing in, in a sort of a stable platform for your life. And then we have boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. Another category, very interesting category, small but fascinating, moral regrets. You're at a juncture. You can do the right thing or you can do the wrong thing. People do the wrong thing, they regret it. The two biggest regrets in the moral category were bullying kids in school and marital infidelity. Those are the two massive regrets. But there are other kinds of moral regrets too. It's basically, if only I'd done the right thing. You say that sometimes the moral regrets people submitted in the surveys read like the production notes for a Ten Commandments training <laughs> video. Uh-huh. Sorry for laughing and, at my own language, yeah. No, <laughs> I loved how that was like as if you were hearing it for the first yeah, time. I yeah. like it though. But but I understand I'm not the first person to read to this to you. You read this to yourself, your books, because it's in the process of listening to the yes. spoken word that you decide whether something is compelling yes. and interesting and so on. I think it's yeah. a great tactic for writing. That seems to me to be a kind of message in all sorts of media and in all sorts of ways to suggest that there's no consequence whatsoever to a whole series of action. And yet what you found is data to support what I have found in my life and coaching people and counseling people and listening to people deeply is that they do have regrets around actions they felt themselves were immoral. Yeah. And so it's not helpful to have society say, oh, there's no big deal. Yeah, but what do you do with this personal guilt? I find these moral regrets kind of heartening because what it suggests is that our nature is that we want to be good. I don't think that's true for everybody. I think there's some people who do something morally reprehensible and don't care. But I actually, I really do believe they're in the minority and in distinct minority and that most of us want to be good. And so these moral regrets 
I, I think are affirming in a way. They say that most of us actually want to lead decent lives. We want to do the right thing. And when we don't, we're haunted by it. I remember reading in the book a whole list of people that part of their own beliefs include no regrets. You've got Angelina yeah. Jolie. I yeah. don't believe in regrets. Bob Dylan, yeah. I don't believe in regrets. John Travolta, yeah. I don't believe in regrets. Fire, core walking, <laughs> motivational maestro, Tony Robbins, I don't believe in regrets. Headbanging Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash, I don't believe in regrets. Why is it so important to advocate that they have no regrets? I think it's a mix of things. Number one is that they don't want to reckon with their mistakes themselves. Number two, they don't want to reveal it to other people because they think other people will think less of them. People who have no regrets... That is usually a sign of a grave problem. That's a sign that you might have brain lesions. It's a sign that you might have Parkinson's disease. It's a sign that you might have Huntington's disease. It's a sign that you might be a sociopath. Truly, the only people without regrets are people whose brains haven't developed or whose brains have been damaged. All of us have regrets. It's part of being human. That makes so much sense to me. The fourth core regret was connection yes. regrets. And I, yes. I want to spend a bit of time on that. You referenced a few different things here, but the Grant study came up again. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's a famous study that began in the early part of the 20th century. It's a long longitudinal study of men. It happened to be all men, all white men, actually, who were at Harvard, and they followed them through their lives and in a really comprehensive way. So looking at physiological measures, looking at psychometric measures, looking at intellectual measures to see who thrived and who didn't. And then they expanded it to include people of men, again, of different socioeconomic classes, and they expanded it again to have a wider group of people. But the TLDR, as the kids say, is that the only thing that matters is love and relationships. If you want to know who's going to be happy and thriving, look to see, do they have people who they love and who love them? You quote the Harvard Gazette from 2017 about this longitudinal mm -hmm. study, its findings. I'll just quote that back here, that close relationships more than money or fame are what keep people happy throughout their lives. Those ties protect people from life's discontents, help to delay mental and physical decline, yep. and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. Yep. That finding proved true across the board among both the Harvard men and the inner city participants that were added later into the study. This was the largest category from this core regrets that you found. Am I quoting that correctly? Yes. There was a story that you shared of one of these people that filled out your survey and that you worked with, talked to her and coached her through a process. Tell us about that. Well, there are, there are a few people. I mean, what you see with connection regrets is that people have a relationship or perhaps should have had a relationship that was intact and it suddenly starts drifting apart. Very few of the relationships that came apart came apart in dramatic ways. They, most of them came apart in slow, almost invisible ways. And so in, in one case, there was a, there's a, a woman who had a very, very close friend in college and they graduated from college and they were still pretty friendly. And over time, they began to drift apart. And this went on for years. Nobody wanted to reach out. They felt that reaching out would feel awkward and the other side wouldn't care. And one of the things that we know from the experience of all these people who have submitted connection regrets and tried to do something about them, not to mention what we know from a pile of research, is that we're wrong about that, <laughs> that we, we're worried that it's going to feel awkward when we reach out, but it feels less awkward than we expect. And we worry that other people aren't going to appreciate our overtures when in fact mm -hmm. they almost always do. You 
quote five words from one of the leaders of the grant, George Vallant. Tell us what he said. He said, happiness is love, full stop. He worked as the leader of that longitudinal study for 30 years. I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? 30 years you're leading this one project and you're not the only leader of it. I mean, that tells you about the importance of this project as a whole. It's a pretty amazing project. I mean, the amount of research that they did and the kinds of things that they found from people and and looked at things like IQ. They looked at things even like physical well-being. And those things ended up mattering a lot less than anybody expected. When we think about our lives, what gives it wholeness are other people. And when those relationships come apart, it feels bad. And when we believe that we're responsible for those things coming apart, our instinct is not to reach out because we think it's going to be uncomfortable. And our instinct instead should be to reach out because what these regrets are doing, and this is why I think it's so powerful, is that these four core regrets, as I say in the book, operate as a photographic negative of the good life. If we know what people regret the most, We can reverse that and know what they value the most. And what do we value? We've been talking about some amount of stability, the chance to do something, to learn and grow. And we want to have connection and love. That's what it's about. And I would imagine, Greg, in your coaching, no matter who you're coaching, ultimately the coaching comes down to these kinds of things. This reminds me of a a story from Thomas S. Monson, the former president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And He was really known the world over for service, for human connection. While he was a young man, he's in a church meeting, and he gets this feeling, this uh, prompting to leave and go see someone who's Mm. in hospital. And he rushes out even before the meeting's over because he just keeps on feeling this. And he drives, rushes to the hospital. He, He runs down the hall, and a nurse meets him there. And he says, oh, are you Tom Monson? Yes. He said, oh. I'm so sorry, the patient died. He was calling for you before he did. Mm. Went, sat down and just wept. That's a connection regret, in in action. And in that moment, makes a decision. I will never not follow a prompting like that, no matter what, for the rest of my life. He's learning from his regret. I have a story in the book of somebody who has a very similar Monson moment, who had a friend who was seriously ill, and she wanted to call her friend. And she put off calling her friend. And when she heard her friend had taken an even worse turn, she put it off a little longer and she called. And like Mr. Monson, the friend had passed. And she actually applied that lesson to to other friends. This is why regret, while it's negative, it is instructive. It clarifies. There is no shame in admitting a mistake. After all, we're surely only admitting we're now wiser than we once were. Well, let's hope so. That's arguably what it is. I'll give you another takeaway that I really like, which is your five concrete things to do, which is the failure resume. That is literally number five on my list. That was exactly what I was about to do. So the failure resume is great. It's an idea from Tina Selig, who is a professor of practice at Stanford University, not at GSB where you're from, but at engineering school. She says you should make a failure resume, which is a list of all of your screw-ups and setbacks and mistakes. In doing that, I looked it over saying, okay, what's the lesson that I learned from each of these things? And I realized I'd been making the same mistake over and over. That act was clarifying to me. It's like, oh my gosh, 
I'm not learning anything from my mistakes. I keep making them over and over and over again. But what you need is you needed this very simple process of sense making and lesson extraction. And once I did that, it was transformative. Yeah, I love the phrase sense making. That to me is different than even just drawing a lesson from it. Sense making. It's meaning making. It's what does this mean now? And changing that meaning by thinking and, and, and pondering it and so on. Now, let's just go back to this failure resume. So when you say you made a failure resume, like exactly what did you do? I took, okay, I, I, I took a Word document. Okay. All right. And in Word, there is a function called tables. Okay. And I made a table and it was two columns. And in the left column, I wrote the thing that I'd screwed up, took this job. Like this job was a total waste. Then in the other one is like, okay, what did I learn from it? And there were some cases where it's like, okay, I don't know what I learned from it. It's like, maybe I just had bad luck. Maybe that wasn't so much a failure as it just was circumstance or something like that. But one of the areas that I flopped was sort of taking things on and not being fully committed. And not being fully committed to me was almost a guarantee of failure. Like you might as well just not even do it if you're not going to be fully committed to it. What's an example of that? Something that you took on without being fully committed. There was a business venture that I tried as a spin-off to one of my books. And I didn't really want to run a business, but I had a partner who was a lovely guy and it didn't go anywhere. It was a total flop. I think a big part of it was is that I didn't want to run this business. I didn't had I had no interest in this. You had business. no interest in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't committed to it. I was sort of paying attention in a half-ass way. That became a very useful lesson. You had to go to the core and figure out what matters, what's essential and what's not. You say that your regrets are a photographic negative, and I'm going to now say it, my words following that through, a photographic negative to design a life that really matters. Yeah. That's why to create a regrets resume, yes, it's painful, but it's data. It's really right. rich data. Exactly. exactly. And if you use it right, it becomes precise data for you to construct a life that is significant that's meaningful, that's rich, that's essential. That's the whole idea. To me, that's the mindset shift that you are trying to bring about in the power of regrets. Yeah, well said. I mean, I do think that this negative emotion gives us the pathway to a life well-lived. And it's not super complicated. And it's not super complicated. What 16,000 people have told me is that there's a relatively small set of things that really deeply matter to them. I think there is something so profound in the idea of not just admitting regret, but as you say here, to write it down, to list it, to think about it, not to dwell and consume with it, but to face it. The idea here is that looking backward can help us move forward, but if you're at the end of your life, there's not much road left. Now that said, just to be clear here, that when people get to sort of later in their life, what seems to happen is that even if they can't do anything about their particular regret, what they can do is transmit the lesson from that regret to other people. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
But I wanted to end here on this, that you have in the book, and it was based in a researcher, you'll remember who, that two narratives that mm. one- Dan like, McAdams of Northwestern University. And as luck would have it, you're, I'm wearing a, a sweatshirt from Northwestern right now. Perfect moment. Tell us about what he found in that contrast. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Dan McAdams is a personality psychologist at Northwestern, and he examines how narrative helps us form identity. And he says there are two reigning- narratives in our lives. One of them is what he calls a contamination narrative, and one of them is what he calls a redemption narrative. Contamination narrative is things go from good to bad. The redemption narrative is bad to good. That is that they are redeemed. And and I think that regret is the ultimate redemption narrative, that we can take this negativity and use it to chart forward. And really at the heart of regret is narrative. We're traveling in time and telling stories about the past. We're looking to the future and telling stories about the future. And if we see our lives as a redemption narrative, that is, if if we see our lives saying, you know what, things were bad, but I learned something from it, I redeemed it, and now I'm using that to go forward, then I think we have healthy, well-adjusted lives. And what McAdams says is very interesting. As As an immigrant to this country, McAdams has this notion that America is really built around redemption narratives, that America's story about itself is full of redemptive narratives. First of all, I love the contamination versus redemption. In the end, there is something deep in the culture of redemption. I think this ability to make mistakes, talk about it, move forward, believing that good will eventually prevail, I think is profound. I I, I think that America at its best is a redemption narrative. We're trying to become more perfect. And the way you become more perfect is by reckoning with your imperfections of the past. And I think that's really important at a individual level, but I also think it's important at a national level. And if, and if we have a movement in this country that says, you know what, we've been great all the time, everything, we, what are you talking, we don't need to reckon with any of our mistakes or any of the things that we did where it was wrong. What are you talking about? That's anti-American. That is dangerous. It seems to me there's two extremes that we have to avoid. We have to avoid a sort of contamination story where we say, yeah. well, because there is bad, everything's mm-hmm. bad and exactly. everything's exactly. corrupt in become, every exactly. possible way. Exactly. That narrative, I think, is very dangerous as a country. It's dangerous as an idea. But so is the other extreme, exactly well described by you. Everything's always been great. It's like, yeah. what does that even mean? It's the same problem. Yeah. No regrets. There's no yeah. regrets. Yeah. Nothing's yeah. been bad. Yeah. The redemption story is in the middle. Where you say, right. yeah, there's, there's problems, but there's hope. Here's the thing about redemption narratives. It's healthy. The other approaches are not healthy. We can always go from imperfect to more perfect. That is health, okay? That is yes. how nations are healthy. That's how individuals are healthy. That's absolutely true. And at any point in the whole human system that we have things that we just can't talk about. Yeah. Like as soon as you have some families of origin have subjects that are so taboo, you can't, it's not that you can't talk about them. You can't even talk about not being able to talk about them. Mm. And, and as soon as you have that, you're damning progress. You have to be able to talk about these things. I mean, that's what the psychotherapy literature and experience has taught us over the last 50 years. That's the premise of almost all of the successful interventions are around the idea that if you create enough space, enough safety to be able to talk about the complex thing, the uncomfortable emotion, in enough space, you can start to unravel it within yourself and and then you can start to take better action as a result of it. And it seems Mm. to me that we're now riffing on that, of course, at a societal level, 
But that's really what you're going for with the power of regret is create enough safety in your own world to take these actions we've just talked about, these little specific tools to make a beginning so that you can unravel the regret and sort of, let's say, knit it, weave it into mm. something more meaningful, mm -hmm, into something mm -hmm. that that makes something beautiful. You have mm -hmm. the raw materials. The regret mm -hmm. is a raw material. It's not something to be pretended away. It's not something uh, to be devalued. It's highly valuable raw material that can be utilized into, in, literally into a life that really matters. I'll give you the final word. My final word is to be your hallelujah chorus on that. Amen. Dan Pink, thank you. And thank you really for being on the What's Essential podcast. And thank you for uh, every listener. Thank you for being here. Really, thank you for listening, for being here again, for being a part of the What's Essential experience. One thing I'm going to offer for the first 10 people who, if you like this particular episode, go write a review of it, send your review with your address to info at gregmcewen.com and... I will send you a copy of The Power of Regret from Dan Pink. That's a, a simple way of saying thank you for being here and a small way to support this important book, which I'm sure will be, again, a tremendous bestseller and a phenomenon for you, Dan. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. It's a lovely gesture and I appreciate this fascinating conversation. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.